As those baskets are making their way around, of course, I invite you to turn to John chapter 4. We continue our series through the book of John, and we've been spending about three weeks here in this most famous of Bible passages, the encounter with Jesus by the woman at the well in Samaria. And, and just like all good trilogies, cinematic trilogies, they all have an epic end, don't they? And so, so you know, Darth Vader dies, and the one ring is tossed into the fire, and Marty McFly ends up with the girl and the car and the cool parents, okay? Our kids just got one of those, okay? Just one of those. It's true of this sermonic trilogy as well. There is an epic ending, and we want to unpack it together. If you've been with us, or even if, or if you haven't, just let me just trace out very briefly where we've been as we dive into today's text. Jesus goes, on, goes into Samaria with his disciples, not by accident. Jesus has a one-way mission to meet this woman, and it's not just any woman. It's a, it's a scandal-ridden woman. It's a woman who, who worships, from the Jewish perspective, a false religion, She's a woman of questionable ethnic heritage from their perspective. She, she is a woman who's, just, who's morally undesirable. Jesus, um, as, as he presses in on her, um, he you know, she finds out that she has five husbands. She's living with a man now who, who's not her husband. And Jesus makes a beeline for this woman because he has a mission. And, and part of his mission is, is to... It's to communicate to her and to us that he is living water. That although she has been trying to fill her life with sexuality and relationships and men, it has not worked. It has not worked in satisfying that deep thirst of her soul. And Jesus says, I am that living water. And and, and part of what we've been endeavoring to do here as we looked at this story is to say, you know what, This this is not so much... A, a program for evangelistic strategy or evangelistic technique or, or do this just like Jesus did. No, no, no. We're not Jesus in the story. Who are we for, Oaks? The woman. We are the ones who are in need. We are the ones who are needy. We are, we are dependent. We are, we are immoral. We are unrighteous. And we need this living water just as much as this woman does. And last week we left off with Jesus telling us, this woman, that, that ultimately worship is not about a place. Worshiping Jesus is not about a particular tradition or a particular ritual or, or what we wear or where we go or what kind of building we inhabit. Fundamentally, true worship is about a person. And that person is Jesus. And, and today, as we, as we reach the epic conclusion of this story... We are going to talk about how God used the transformation and testimony of this unnamed woman. Now think about that for a second. There's a lot of, lot of stories in the Gospels where we're, God graces us with the names of people. So we know about Nicodemus. We know about Zacchaeus. We, we know about Joseph of Arimathea. Lot, lots of snapshots into people's lives. We know who they are. But you know what? This woman goes unnamed. And I think maybe for a reason. It's through this unnamed woman and her story and her testimony, 2,000 years later, here we're talking about it, God uses to transform and save a whole village. 
how does God want to use you? How does God want to use us? How does God want to use this church family? How does he want to use your family, your marriage, your testimony as imperfect, flawed, and messy as it might be? God can and will use anyone. So that's what we're going to see today. Let's stand. I'm going to invite you to um, to follow along with me on the screen or with your own Bibles from John chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 27 through 42. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, we pray that those last few words of this text, Savior of the world, would penetrate our hearts, would penetrate our souls, that we would not walk away unchanged, we would not walk away disconnected or disconcerted or distracted, but that we would, we would have those words right there, Savior of the world, seep into our hearts and minds and souls for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me take your seats. So, as Rob mentioned, we, we, we do several things around here in the fall, most of which involve college football. But, you know, the Knowles have been, have been practicing long and hard, really been practicing since the day they, they were done with their bowl game, out in the, out in the Florida heat, because they have, a, they have a date this next Saturday night with the evil empire, don't they? All right? Darth Sidious, the stormtroopers, Death Star, Nick Satan, and the Tide. Um, that's right. Because they're working for a payoff. Now, the, 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 the word payoff literally defined the reward at the end of a long process, the return on investment. So all this work, all these hours, all this slaving, conditioning is working towards this payoff, Lord willing, of the big W come, set, come, come this coming Saturday night. And we expect each and every one of you to be here bright and early after that game. Okay, trust me, we do. Well, the same thing with John and his story. Everything John has been doing in these 41 verses up to this point is to get us to a payoff. It's, it's, it's to get us to sort of climatically 
to wrap our minds and hearts around this one truth. As we leave this story, John wants one singular thing. There's many things he wants ringing in our ears, but there's one singular thing that, that's of vital importance that he wants us to take home, and it's found in verse 42. Let's look at that again. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and here it is, and we know that this indeed is indeed the Savior of the world. There's many reasons why God has included this story in the canon of Scripture. But from John's perspective, and there's many things we've learned from this story, but from John's perspective, this is the payoff. He's told us this whole story so that we can read that, absorb that, and then take that with us. Now, this would have been even for, for 60 years after the fact when, when folks were reading John's story, this would have been pretty mind-blowing for the Jews. Because remember that, that although the Old Testament had from the very beginning really pretty clearly pointed out that, that while salvation began with the Jews, it wouldn't end with the Jews. That Abraham was being called out of, out of the Chaldees into the promised land in order to found a great nation. That all the nations of the world would, would be blessed through Abraham. Isaiah reminds us that, that this city on a hill, Jerusalem, was to be a light, not just for God and to the people, but in fact to the, to the whole world. But how easily they, we forget because Judaism at the time really had become very sectarian and, and blinded to this idea that, that, in fact, God was out to save the whole world, often characterized by animosity, racial animosity, hatred, and, and in doing so, had really missed the heart of God. Now, understand something. This, this, this idea of, uh, of racial animosity, who's in and who's out, and, and, and who's superior and who's better— this is endemic to human beings, and no less true for those who are believers. Because remember, even in the, in the New Testament, as the church was being founded, the church was still wrestling over this. Remember, Peter, a decade later, after Jesus went to heaven, he was, he was in Galatia, would not eat with the Gentile believers for out of fear of being contaminated or, or looked down upon or... So, so this was a pressing issue. And so, so anyone reading this, particularly Jews in that particular time period, would have been absolutely staggered by what is being claimed here. The question is, what does that have to do with us? You may say, well, Pastor Paul, I know. I mean, God, God can, I mean, he, he's, you know, red, yellow, black, and white, we are precious in his sight, right? We, we, we know all that. But see, I think, we suffer from a different kind of blindness. See, we, it's easy for us to become distracted. It's easy for us to be consumed with our own lives. As, as pluralism expands, this idea of Jesus saving people, saving the world, we're just like, ah, uh, I'm just, I guess he could, but will he? I don't know. We become hardened to it. We become cynical to it. We lack an, a, a particular kind of urgency. Folks, as, as we dive into this text, I'm really praying for us personally and our families and our church family that God would reignite our hearts, our vision around those four words, Savior of the world. So there, there, there's four 
parting truths, I think, that John gives us here in this text that I'm praying reignite our spiritual taste buds. That Jesus did not just come to save you. He did not just come to save your family. He did not just come to save a, a very narrow segment of people in the upper middle class in northeast Tallahassee. But in fact, Jesus is the Savior of the world. So here's the first one. First truth. The Savior of the world can sovereignly save whomever he wants. Whomever he wants. Now, it's interesting that the gospel kind of, and by gospel, what I mean is the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came, he died, lived a perfect life, he died on a cross as, as a sacrifice for our sins, he's risen from the grave. That, that's what I mean by the good news, that wherever this good news shows up, surprising things happen. In fact, subversive things happen. It shows up in the most unlikely of places, Sikar, which is the name of this little village, and proceeds to transform the most unlikely of people. Is this not a bizarre evangelistic strategy that Jesus has here? The first time that he makes a public pronouncement that he is the savior of the world, you would have, I mean, he could have gone to Rome. I mean, he could, he, could, he could have gone to Corinth. He could have gone to Athens. These are all leading cities. He could have gone, even gone to Jerusalem. But he picked backwater Sikhar in, in Samaria of all places to reveal himself that he indeed was the Savior. Now, it's interesting. It says in this text that he spent two days with the Samaritans. And remember that in the, in the, in the Jewish tradition, they were looking for a Messiah. And they thought, well, Messiah comes to Jews. And the Sumerians were, 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 because they believed in just the first five books, they were looking for the prophet that would follow Moses. And they said, no, 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 no. The Messiah will come from Samaria. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. <laughs> the Messiah is the Savior of the world. And that's why they make this pronouncement as Jesus departs from that place. Now, as I mentioned before, we can have a different sort of, of spiritual blindness to that great truth. Let, let, let's be honest. There are places that, that you and I go in this city. There may be restaurants we eat at. There may be may classes that we attend. There may be groups of people that we intermingle with, whether they're at the office or on the campus or down the street or what have you. And, and although we haven't really stated it this way because it's not real spiritual, in our minds, our, our hearts, we really know, you know, there's really no hope for that person. <laughs> there, there, there's, there's really no hope. There's just no way that God could. I mean, I know theoretically, Pastor Paul, he, he could, but I just don't see it happening. You know, and it, it extends to us up here in Northeast Tallahassee. We live in Northeast Tallahassee, and we may say, you know, there's plenty of churches up here. The, the gospel has saturated this area. Those who are going to be Christians are already Christians. You know, everybody is sort of locked into their spiritual station of life. Nothing is ever going to change. We may not say it that way, but that becomes our heart. And we become cynical and we become sort of blind to the needs around us. Forgetting that even in an area like this, and this is, this is statistically true, overwhelmingly, the vast majority of people in Tallahassee do not belong to a faith family. 
do not belong to a church, much less profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus, when when this declaration is made of Jesus, that he is the Savior of the Lord, it means that anyone can be saved. Do you believe that? I mean, honestly, do you really believe it? The worst of the worst, that prodigal child, that person down the street, that the person that you have just seen struggling for so many years, that group of people, whatever that picture is in your mind, do you really believe that? Because I was um, trying to go down to, to, to Maple Street um, a few times a day just to be able to, to meet folks and see some of you and hope, 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 uh, hope that they give me free stuff, and this, which is kind of fun, but also to meet, to meet neighbors and to try to meet people that are, that are just coming in and, you know, just remembering, hey, the, Jesus is their Savior too. Well, I, I went in a couple days ago, and there was someone sitting in there that I, whenever I see them in town, I, I'm honest, I just avoid them, okay? It's, it's not Mike Slaughterback, okay? It's not him, okay, I promise. Other, other people. But this is someone who, who's caused a lot of people I know and love a lot of pain. This is someone who's... Um, He's really, um, you know, just, I don't want to talk to him. And so, I think he's lost and, you know, appears to be. And so, as I got my mug of coffee and I turned to leave, okay, and I wasn't going to say anything, and I was hoping that he did not see me, it just really dawned on me. You know, not only is Jesus the Savior of the world, but he's the only savior that this person has. And so there wasn't revival, there wasn't repentance, but there was, you know, I, I need to go back in here and, and, and talk to this person because here's the thing, savior of the world doesn't just mean that anyone can be saved or, or that a saved person can come from anywhere. It means that there is only one savior. See, there's not multiple saviors. There's, there's, it's really easy, really tempting, even in the conservative evangelical culture, to say, I've got Jesus, I've got mine. Everybody else finds their own way. And whatever way they, they find is, you know, I may not agree with it, but no, 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 that's not what this text says. We have to be reminded there's no other name under heaven or earth by which men can be saved. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? The Savior of the world can sovereignly save whomever he wants. But number two, the Savior of the world can sovereignly save, now this is just as important, whenever he wants. Look, look down at verse 27. John makes a note here, and he doesn't have to, so, so he includes it for some reason, where he says, just then his disciples came back. And I think this is John's way of telling us that that the disciples came back just when they needed to. In other words, Jesus had sent this group out to get sandwiches in the the village, right? He sent them out to buy food so that he can have this strategic conversation with this woman in this time in this place. And they don't get back a moment too late. They don't get back a moment too soon. Jesus and this woman have said everything that needs to be said as a part of this conversation. 
And I think it's, John, it's John's way of reminding us that every aspect of this encounter, every aspect of this conversion, and this is the way for anyone's conversion. This is the way it was for yours. It was the way for mine. I, t- I said this the first week. God doesn't do random Every aspect from beginning to end was orchestrated by the sovereign Christ. Going to Samaria, the time of day he got there, the fact that she is there, the fact that that she is alone, the the fact that the disciples are hungry, the fact that disciples don't come back until just the right time, everything is in perfect alignment. Now, hope none of you permanently damaged your eyes on, on Monday with a great eclipse. But I heard something interesting someone was talking about and writing about the precision and nuancing for some such thing to happen. You know, the fact that the earth 93 million miles away and, and the earth is spinning on its axis and, and don't worry, I won't go about this too long. And then the earth rotating around the sun and then the moon rotating around the earth, and that we, because of the laws of physics and laws I don't understand and all that sort of stuff, can predict to the day, to the minute, to the second, when all this is going to happen. It's extraordinary. Hey, we, we take it for granted. We flip on the TV and it's like, oh, that's pretty cool. If we're forgetting, this is insane. It's insane, number one, that we can measure this, but it's insane that, that the universe operates in such a pattern and rhythm and congruence in perfect alignment that, I mean, that, that's just, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. Guys, if God can orchestrate the movements of the planet in the universe, I'm pretty sure that he's got things under control in your life and in my life. I'm pretty sure although the timing may seem all wrong to you, that, that God knows there's a great work to be done in Sikar, and he is going to do it and can do it, listen, whenever he wants to. See, see, a lot of times we think it's not just about whomever, it's about whenever. It's like, oh my gosh, that person, that's going to take 30 years of therapy. I'm a counselor, I'm not knocking therapy, okay? That's going to take 30 years of therapy. That's going to take, oh my gosh, like 10, 10 years of marriage encounter weekends, okay? That's going, to, that's going to, oh boy, that is like a long, I mean, whoo, okay. So, I mean, you know, I, yeah, maybe, maybe the world will become saved. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe the gospel will transform North America, but, but not in my lifetime. I mean, we, we, we say things like this. Jesus has something interesting to say about this. Look at verse 36. And remember, he's, he's describing the process of salvation. And, he, and he's describing it in terms of, of, of sowing and reaping. In other words, planting and then harvesting. Okay? And so, so this is what he says in verse 36. And it's very interesting about this issue of timing. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life So that sower and reaper, now listen to this, may rejoice together. Now what in in the world is is Jesus talking about here? Because he goes on to say that, don't we always say four months until the harvest? Which I think was probably a, a proverbial saying. What Jesus is basically saying is, look, in the normal scheme of things, what you do 
is in the spring, you prepare the soil, you till. I don't know about these things. Okay, I just slept at a Holiday Inn Express last night. But anyway, they, they, you, you plant the seed and you stand, you go celebrate. Hey, we, we planted the crop. We're, it's at the beginning of the spring season. We all get around the table together. We're happy. And, and now, then you wait. You tend and water and do all those things and you wait. And then four, six, nine, whatever, months later, you go out in the fall and you harvest. You bring in the crop and then you celebrate again. But Jesus says in the kingdom of God, those two things can happen at exactly the same time. See, see, from a human perspective, we think, well, four months until the harvest. Not in my lifetime. Maybe God will save that person. It won't be through me. can't be through me. That marriage can never be saved. No, no, no. And, and, and Jesus is reminding us that that's not the principle of the kingdom. I think he's got Amos 9.13 in mind here. Listen to this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Now listen, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. In other words, the sower's going along sowing. And, and, and there's so much sowing going on, he bumps into the reaper. And the reaper is gathering so much crop, he's, he's, the, their work has converged together. Just as soon as there are seeds thrown in the ground, there is this crop. And Jesus says, case in point, look at this woman in the village. You guys were out getting sandwiches. That's what you guys were doing. I was sowing seed. And while you were gone, you get back and you get to see the harvest. You get to participate in the harvest, the joy of the harvest, and you had nothing to do with sowing the seed. You thought Samaritans were dirty, lost, and never going to be saved. Not only that, but this woman went into the village and told her friends while you guys were still getting sandwiches. And lo and behold, the whole village is saved. See, when it comes to changing a heart and transforming a life, the time between sowing and reaping can be a season. We know this. Some of you are still in that season. You're still there. I'm praying. I'm waiting. I'm hoping. I'm trusting. It can be a long time. Some of us will never see the fruits of the reaping until eternity, until we're with the Lord Jesus. That's sometimes how it works in the kingdom. But listen, Four Oaks, here's, here's, here's the point of this story. Oftentimes, not. See, you, you may look around and say, is, is Christianity being eclipsed in the West? To which we have to say, maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe the kingdom sun is setting on North America and the West and Christendom is a thing of the past. And, and, you know, and to be honest, let's be honest, it looks like it, doesn't it? It looks like it. But, as John Piper would say, maybe not. Maybe not. See, the point of this passage is where do you need the eyes of faith? Not just to see whomever, but whenever. To keep on praying, to keep on trusting, to keep on sowing, keep on sowing knowing that God can bring the sowing and reaping together just like that. Third point, we're going to hit these last two a little quicker. The Savior of the world, this, I think this is very interesting from what we just said, saves people through words. Now, all through this story, there's an interesting interplay between the words of Jesus and the words of this woman, Okay. So, so we go back two weeks ago when Jesus said, I will give you living water. 
Here's, here's my hope. I'll give you living water. Last week, we, we, we saw how Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. I am the one who's come. And God uses that testimony, his words, to save her. Well, what's interesting is that this woman, in turn, goes back to the village. And what does she say? Come and see Jesus. Could this be the Christ? This is the man who told me everything about me. And it says that because of her testimony, what? People believed. So here's the question for you. The woman's words or Jesus' words? Which ones? Yes. That's how to answer that. And let me explain what I mean. What I think this teach Texas, uh, this 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 text teaches us. I am someone theologically, biblically, who believes in the absolute sovereignty of God over salvation. I believe, and I think we've seen it over and over in the book of John, that if God does not open hearts and open eyes, we will remain spiritually dead. Look in this passage. Jesus is hungry. Okay, that that's their level of spiritual reasoning. The woman, um, Jesus says, I'll give you living water. And she's like, where do you dig that kind of well? Let's go back to, to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And what did Nicodemus say? I can't crawl into my mom's womb. That's, that's, that's crazy. Over and over and over again, John is going to show us that our natural condition is blind. And just as John 6, tells us that, in, that, that no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. And, 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 and he's going to show us time and time again that God is absolutely sovereign over the salvation process. But you know what else John makes really clear? And I, and I believe this is equally true. That if you and I unequivocally don't share the gospel with people, those people will perish. And in and, and, and Romans 9 and 10 is a case study for this. Romans 9, famous passage, God has mercy on whom he has mercy. That's what Paul says. It's up to God. But what does Paul also say in Romans 10? How will they be saved unless someone tells them? Now, now we have a problem with that. We've got to like hire philosophy majors, sorry philosophy majors, to figure that one out, right? Well, you know, this and God and he foresaw this and this and this. The scripture The scriptures don't go there. The scriptures just say both of these things are true. Don't get more clever than God. God is absolutely sovereign, and his means of saving people, guess what, is people like the woman at the well, is people like you, using words. You may say, Pastor Paul, I don't... I, I, I need an evangelism training class to know what to say. And let me just tell you, baloney, baloney. You don't. That's not, information is not your biggest problem, and it's not my biggest problem. This woman could, could tell, say a few things. I was lost and desperate, and then I was found. This man has offered me living water. This man has changed my heart. This man has changed my life. Now, I want you to come with me to see him. It's not brain surgery. It's not, it's not overly complicated. It's so simple that even little children do it, right? Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so. No, 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 no. 
Words and knowledge are not our issue. Our issue is that we have to have something compelling us, don't we? And that brings us to our last point. What is that thing? The Savior of the world, last point, is the one who provides the fuel for faith. You may be sitting here and saying, Pastor Paul, listen, I I just got to be honest. I, I got nothing in the tank spiritually. I'm starting from ground zero here. I, I, I just, my life is busy. It's complicated. I got kids and job and money. And this whole Jesus, the Savior of the world thing, it just doesn't move the needle for me. I'm just like, oh, I probably so. But I, I don't have anything to sort of get me going. Jesus speaks directly to that. Look in verse 34. What, here's the question, what motivated Jesus? What compelled Jesus? What did Jesus, what did he wake up every morning on his heart and mind and soul? Verse 34, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, food, sustenance, things we need, things that give us energy, things that equip us for the day ahead. Jesus says, let me tell you what motivates me to do the will of God. And then he says a very strange thing. (laughs) The thing that motivates me to do the will of God, he says, is to do the will of God. (laughs) Thanks, Jesus. That was helpful. Okay. Here's what I think he means. What what here is the will of God? And and, and I, I think this text shows us. Look at verse 36. The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. What we see over and over again in the Gospel of John, that the thing that animated Jesus, that propelled Jesus forward, was to do the will of his Father, specifically to give eternal life. That's what compelled this man. That was to do the will of the Father. And of course, this ultimately resulted in his death because the only way to give eternal life was to lay, was to lay down his life. See, I think John puts this interesting little, little nugget in the passage. He says that this woman, after she had, you know, look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, why would John say that? Why this little bit about the water jar? Thank you, Prue. Urgency. She was compelled. She had received eternal life. She was compelled to be the instrument by which eternal life would be given. Hers was a heart reignited by the joy of life saved. There's a lot of things I would pray for us in this coming season, but, but this would be near the top of the list, if not the top of the list that God would remind us today that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world and that what gives God pleasure, Jesus' pleasure, is the dispensing, the giving out of eternal life and that we, by the same token, would be compelled by the same. And you may say, well, Pastor Paul, what, what if I don't have that? What if that's gone? 
because I want us to start with the most basic of postures. It was the posture of this woman when she requested that Jesus give her the living water. What's the one thing I think God would have us do this morning if we do not have that joy and compulsion towards eternal life? What, what, what would you want us to do? Very simple. Ask. Ask. When is the last time? When was, when was the last time for me before I studied this this week? When was the last time we prayed, God, compel me with this idea that you're the Savior of the world. Compel me with this idea that you have given eternal life. Compel me with this idea that you can save anyone, anywhere, anytime, under any conditions. When's the last time you prayed for that? When's the last time I prayed for that faithfully? Folks, I believe as we do, as we first ask, then Jesus will give us eyes. And then we will look. And then we will see. And then we will tell and say, this is the one who has told me everything. You too come and meet him. Let's pray.